Just got an email from Jeff, and it says, I always like to answer questions if I know the answer. If I don't, well, we'll have to go and find somebody who does know the answer. If the London Knights end up in first place in the OHL at the end of the season, is there any advantage in the playoffs? Would they get home ice advantage all the way through? That is the advantage. Jeff has actually answered his own question. Maybe that's why I thought, hey, I, I got this one. Yeah, he's got it right. Home ice all the way through. Do you ever have a question? Like I said, if I don't know the answer, maybe we can find somebody who does. Are we living in a simulation? I don't know. But we could find someone who could at least give us an opinion. Or we could just banty it about ourselves. Great to have you with us. We are going to be talking about banning things like toboggan hills and ball hockey, road hockey. Oh, we don't want to have those things going on. Snowball fights. Well, it depends where they are. If you have a snowball fight on your own property, that's okay. But if you have a snowball fight in a park, that can be bad. That can be very bad. This is something that has come up. And in an hour from now, we're going to speak with somebody who has been wanting to hear the words that Ontario Premier Doug Ford spoke yesterday, saying that they are actually going to look into liabilities in municipalities for things like... Well, tobogganing, road hockey, snowball fights in a park. It's called the liability chill, and it winds up seeing municipalities ban tobogganing and street hockey simply because there is a chance that someone could get hurt, and if a municipality is found in any way responsible, then they can be on the hook for a whole lot of money. So it's easier for a municipality to say, yeah, that whole tobogganing thing, I know it's fun, but there's an old stump at the base of the hill, and every once in a while someone runs into it, and litigation. So no tobogganing here. And that's kind of the story. And it is ridiculous. I mean, it's true. Humans are the only species that I can find on this earth that does not allow themselves to subscribe to natural selection. I don't know whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. In some ways, it's good, I suppose. We try and help each other out. But eventually, if somebody is going to go headfirst down that toboggan hill and run into that stump that hopefully everybody knows is there, isn't that on them? I mean... At what time do we take a look and say, yeah, yeah, I got to take this one. That's that's me. I had the choice. I made a bad choice. And now I'm going to live with the consequences. A sore noggin. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to live with what I did. So we'll talk about that in an hour from now. There is an open letter that has been written by former University Student Council presidents at Western. We're going to examine this letter with the help of two past presidents. That's coming up. And we're also going to look at tornadoes. You think the weather is bad now? What if we had a tornado? We don't get tornadoes around here. Well, we do. Oh, we don't get big ones. Well, I guess not. Not really F5s or anything like that like we see in parts of the United States. But we do get tornadoes. In fact, we do get pretty big tornadoes. Sometimes in Canada, we're spread out enough that if a tornado touches down, we don't really hear much about it because it doesn't necessarily wipe out 
a subdivision or businesses doesn't strike a town. So that means that we don't hear as much about it. So we're going to talk tornadoes with a man who is taking a very close look at every single one of them to the north. And we right now, take a look outside, we're in the north. I have this question for you to start the show today. Here we are. We had a big snowfall last night. John Wilson got out his ruler, and I think he had it at 10.7 centimeters. He's got a great place where he can measure depth of snow. And he said there may have been a little wind, but 10.7 centimeters overnight. In Toronto, they got buried. We're talking 30 centimeters in some places. And now we've got this extreme cold. Cold enough for you? You don't even have to ask. Yes. Yes, it's cold enough for you. Well, here's the question. Would you rather deal with what we have been dealing with, with the snow and with the cold, or would you rather get rid of all of that? But here's the trade, because there's always a trade in this. You can't just say, yeah, I'll just, I get rid of all that. I'll just live without it. It'd be nice and comfortable all year. So, would you rather get rid of the cold and all the shoveling that you had to do either last night or this morning, maybe both if you tried to lighten the load, or would you deal with lifting up the hood of your vehicle and finding inside a boa constrictor? What would you like, the risk of getting snowed on or the risk of finding a rather large and kind of angry boa constrictor once you flip the hood. Because that's kind of one of the trades. You want to move to Arizona? This particular boa constrictor was in Miami. And a guy was having some issues with his car, or maybe he was just going to check the oil. I don't know what he was going to do. But he flipped up the hood, and there was a boa constrictor. And then big problem was he needed to pay $300 for animal control to come and get rid of the boa constrictor. And that was kind of more than he had expected to spend during the week. Trade the snow, the ice, the shoveling, but you have a greater risk in warmer, sunnier climates of finding boa constrictors under the hood of your car. I don't know if you've seen the temperatures in North Bay. We're going to be dealing with cold temperatures. Have you ever talked to somebody who's lived in a real northern climate? Not this. This is nothing. We'll we'll get through this. I mean, it brings up conversations that we, we do need to have. Craig Needles made a great point this morning on the Craig Needles show. And you can hear that between 9 and noon every day. But he made a great point this morning in saying, yeah, here we go into a three-day cold snap, it looks like. And we're going to be talking a lot about shelters and housing for vulnerable people or people who happen to be homeless. And we're going to do a lot of talking about that. Why do we save it for now? Why don't we do more talking? Why don't, knowing that we're going to get a cold snap in January, in February, why aren't we doing more at some other time of the year? That's a great question. Because we talk a lot about it and we have seen... A number of things done to try and understand poverty better, to try and understand homelessness better. But have we been able to really fix it? No. Take a look at our shelters. They are jammed. In fact, they are overpopulated. I mean, are we at the point where we're renting hotel rooms for people because we have to get them off the streets and out of the cold? Are we at that point? 
That comes up sometimes in municipalities. I'm not sure whether that's where we are right now. 519-643-2222 if you want to weigh in. Ted, what do you have for us? My, uh, I remember back years ago, before they built the cars, we used to get the odd cat under your hood, and it would get killed by the or badly injured. That was pretty traumatic for some people, not for me. Um, I'd rather have the four seasons up here than living in the... I'm not afraid of boa constrictors or snakes, but I'd rather live up here. Uh, one situation I was in, uh, I was hunting up at Exeter, and uh, I came back to the truck, and it was in late November. I started the truck, and I was in, bang, there was a cat in there, and uh, knocked the tensioner off, and I had to, had to get towed back to London. But the cat lived as far as I know. <laughs> and you know what? They would go in there, what, because it was one of the warmer places warm, to yeah. go? And the same thing when I worked at a service station, uh, a guy came in one day and I said, I got something wrong, and he lifted the hood and there was the cat all mangled, and I had to finish it off. And uh, once again, that's, uh, but I like the four seasons. I don't like January and February much, and this is not, this isn't a bad snowstorm at all. This is just, a, this is like your sister's kiss. There's nothing to it. All you got to do is take your time. Ted, thanks for the call. Bye. <laughs> Just like your sister's kiss. Nothing to it at all. 10.7 centimeters. Absolutely right. If you have talked to somebody who's lived in north area, I mean, we're not north by any means. We hardly have to plug in our vehicles. In fact, do you even plug in your vehicle? Not too many people do. It's not like when you go to the mall in some cities and you actually have plugins available in parking spots. You look up and you think there's a plug there. Well, what's that for? That's for your block heater. That's so you can plug your car in while you go in and shop because you don't want to leave your car unplugged for a couple of hours when it's this cold. Here's what some people have been dealing with in North Bay. You ready for this? Because they had a wind chill, I think, on the weekend that did stretch. Maybe it was just outside North Bay, but it did stretch into like minus 50. With the wind chill. And what they've been dealing with is not plugging your car in necessarily. You can do that. And it keeps the engine warm enough that it'll turn over in the morning. That's very important to do. But you get the engine started and then you can't put it into gear because the gear shift is frozen. So you've got people who will actually throw blankets over top of the gear shift to try and keep it warm. Or you have people who will actually take a second plug... And roll down the window just a little bit and run that other extension cord in. And I don't know how safe this is, but plug in a block heater so that the interior of your car is warm so that you don't have to wait in order to get that car into gear so that you can then drive away. That's what some people, this is just life. This is called January and February. They just absolutely deal with that. Makes you think, well... Frozen gear shift, boa constrictor, I don't know. I'm with Ted, though. I need the changing of the seasons. We absolutely need the changing of the seasons. Uh, just got an email that has come in from Tom, and Tom says, One thing that you do wind up seeing, even in this area, is the glow plug, which is something that you can have installed usually on farm machinery. You turn the key to the left, hold it for a moment, it warms up the engine and the battery and then you can turn it to the right and it will start the vehicle huh i hadn't even heard of that 
Glow Plug. All right, 519-643-2222 if you want to weigh in. We'll talk about weather and climate. And if you're a Donald Trump fan, I'm sorry. I'm going to rip on Donald Trump again, but I can't help it. I cannot help it. And this time, I don't think I'm picking on him. There are things he has to stop doing. We'll get to that in just a moment. Marilyn, you had something to say before we go. Okay. Um, First of all, I like the cold. So it doesn't bother me at all. Of course, I don't have to go out and shovel anything. I live in an apartment, and I never did shovel. So anyhow, um, as far as tobogganing is concerned, as a little girl, me and my my siblings and I used to, and kids in the neighborhood thought nothing of tobogganing down the Quebec Street Hill. What are they going to do? Put kids in a bubble? <laughs> well, but here's the here's the thing. We're going to be talking about this in an hour from now. We'll talk with Kelly Elliott, who was there as Doug Ford made this announcement about looking into the liability factor that municipalities go through. But here's the thing, Marilyn. If one of those children somehow gets even just a little bit injured, and even if it's not really the municipality's fault, but maybe just a little tiny bit, they can be on the hook for a whole lot of money. So they've said, you know what's easy? Easier, not doing that. Well, I'll tell you something right now. I'm glad I grew up in the age I grew up in. When it was During okay the- to toboggan down the Quebec Street Hill and nobody thought anything of it, right? Nobody thought anything of it. The kids would bring, well, I would go over to the corner grocery store and, and get a box, flatten it out, and just fly down that hill. <laughs> and if I got hurt, well, I got hurt. That's right. Well, we need we need the pendulum to swing back a little bit closer to those days, but this, well, this is think- about spending money, and hopefully, here's what they want to do, though. They want to eliminate that liability, or at least look into eliminating that liability, so that it does boil down to, you know what, you, you slid down the hill and you broke your arm? Well, you were sliding down a hill. There was a chance you would break your arm. Well, if I slid down the hill and broke my arm, my mother would take me to the doctor. It'd probably be put in a cast, but she wouldn't sue anyone. I know my mother and I know my dad well. It would be my fault. That's it. Marilyn, thanks for the call. Thank you. Take care. 519-643-2222. One more word on this, and Bob, it belongs to you. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Pretty good, thanks. Hey, did you get that new snow shovel? How to work out for you today? You know what? I didn't get this. I used the <laughs> old one, uh, but but you know what? I have the nicest neighbor in the world. Greg came over this morning, and uh, and he'd already been up. I don't know for an hour, and he was helping me to do the end of my driveway where the plow had come through. And I did look at his shovel. And I said, "Where'd you get that?" And he told me, and I'm uh, I'm heading there. I liked his shovel. Yeah, he's got a good style. Eh? Yeah, you know, this is just another. Uh, you know, I, it drives me a little bit crazy when a store comes in every winter. And it's kind of they sensationalize the whole thing. Like I lived up north and uh, northwestern Ontario, and this would just be a normal day. Like it's, uh, I w- I was out working outside all the time uh, when I was up north, and you know we'd be out in twenty five below, thirty below. That starts getting a little nippy, but uh, I experienced a lot of minus forty five days. Uh, though this time of year, it's uh, you know kind of just normal. But, uh, so how do you stay when it's minus 45? Because we don't get that, Bob. Before I let you go, when it's minus 45, how do you keep warm? What do you, you do? You layer up. Like when I was outside in, in any type of weather like that, because my job, you know, we had to go out. Like, uh, you know, we had to do emergency work on hydrolite and stuff uh, when we got storms and stuff. But you got to layer up, and it's all wool. Wool pants, just layer up as much as you possibly can. And make the best of it, you know. You got to be smart about it. You got to watch 
uh, for frostbite, of course, so you got to wear a balaclava. you just got to be smart and take break, jump in the truck every now and then just to warm up when you need to be. But it's not a lot of fun when it hits that cold. I don't care what anybody says, but, you know, out of necessity, you have to be out there. But, um, you know, it's just uh, sometimes people get this big panic, like we're going to get to minus 20, 30 tonight. So, uh, you know. Uh, it's not the first time we've gone through this, right? Uh, oh, we'll survive it. Bob, uh, thanks yeah. so much for the call. All right, buddy. Take care. We don't reward smart enough, and we don't punish stupid enough, do we? Maybe that's the problem. Reward smart and punish stupid. We need to do more of that. Because, yeah, you want to go outside, and uh, you don't want to be layered up? Chances are, you're going to be cold. But we don't tend to do that. In a moment... <laughs> This is not about rewarding smart and punishing stupid, but I have to read this tweet. The moment I woke up this morning, there it was. I have to read it to you. And even better, I've got to read you some of the responses. The tweet comes from the President of the United States. The responses don't. This is London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. More details coming in on Bruce MacArthur. And his guilty plea, he'll be back in court for sentencing February 4th. And we're at a point where that sounds like it's about six weeks away. It's next week, so he'll be back in court. But did appear in court today and did plead guilty to several charges. Now, before we move on to a tweet I want to read to you, uh, here is a, a quick little bit from a legal analyst by the name of Joseph Newberger. And he expects that when that sentencing arrives for Bruce MacArthur, that he will receive more than one term of life in prison. We have seen now in the last year, uh, one individual, Mr. Millard, get three consecutive sentences. So it's a 75 minimum year term prior to parole. And the reason for that is to acknowledge that each individual murder happened at a separate time. It's not part of what we'd call in the business one transaction. And so the judge would absolutely consider the circumstances underlying the murders. And because of the gruesome nature of this, and that this is a serial killer, these are, these are thrill kills, this is not you know, some fight that went wrong where somebody died, would consider the aggravating factors, the, the horrific nature of the crimes, in order to determine whether there should be consecutive sentences. I would imagine that regardless of Mr. MacArthur being available for parole at 91, that there would be some of these sentences that would be served consecutively. That is Joseph Newberger, legal analyst, and his expectations for sentencing of Bruce MacArthur. We'll have more details on that coming up in about two and a half, three minutes from now. I do want to read this tweet. I'm not picking on Donald Trump, or at least not trying. I guess I am picking on him. But come on, seriously. We have to get something very, very clear here. Let me read this. This comes from Donald Trump's Twitter feed. And it was tweeted out last night at 9.28 p.m. It's had 80,000 replies, most of them not nice. It says, in the beautiful Midwest, wind chill temperatures are reaching minus 60 degrees, the coldest ever recorded. In coming days, expected to get even colder. People can't last, last outside, even for minutes. What the hell is going on with global whamming? His words. He means global warming. Please come back fast. We need you. Come on. Come on. And then, of course, he does get responses like this. Climate versus weather. Please don't tweet stuff like this. 
Obviously, you must know it's ignorant, but your followers are low information enough that they probably believe this garbage. Here's the one that I liked best. This made me want to even get into this. This is a reply that came in to that tweet, and it's uh, from at we fail. It says, climate and weather are two different things, Donald. Think of climate as your bald head. It's permanent, eroding slowly but forever over time. Now think of weather as your comb over. Superficial and here one day, gone the next, but maybe back tomorrow. I thought that was put into a, a nice context. Oh, yeah, that's, that's very, I love analogies. And that's a great analogy. Global warming and weather, not the same thing. And we've got to... We've got to take a look at some point at what is more important to us. And it's going to be a very difficult decision to make. I don't think it'll ever be made. We will just continue to roll along and roll along. And if, in fact, we do see the temperature on Earth rise the 1.5 or 2 degrees that will create the tipping point that there is no turning back from, it will be because we haven't been able to think of those future generations. Because you can't. You have no ties to them. Yeah, well, you know, my great-great-great-grandchild. I, I don't even know if that's going to be a person. I don't know who that is. I have no tie to that. No one has any ties to those generations. So there is nothing forcing our hand right now. That's why we'll just keep going along. The hope for global warming, you know what it probably is? Creating something like an aerosol machine that can throw enough aerosols into the air that maybe we counterbalance things through technology. That's probably what it is. We're not going to do much to counterbalance it now. Crazy. Let's take a break. News is next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Hey, there is a congratulations that needs to go to Jade Kovacevich because she has posted on Instagram that she has signed with A.S. Roma in Italy. So she will be going to play Italian soccer in the women's league there. That is impressive. You look at what she has done, whether it is for FC London, whether it's for the Fanshawe Falcons, she is dynamite. If anyone knows how to score goals in the sport of soccer, it is Jade Kovacevic. So off to A.S. Roma in Italy. Italy, and she's got a picture of her signing and a great big smile on her face. Congratulations. Well done. We are due to get more details on the Canadian Premier League, which is due to start playing very soon. And there is a news conference that is happening today, and so we we should have more details on exactly the when and the how and the what and all of those sorts of things with regard to the Canadian Premier League. Loads of soccer leagues all over the place. I always wonder, and I think basketball leagues sometimes do this as well, you get too many leagues going. We saw this in baseball a while ago where you have too many things, too many leagues going. We had, what, the Canadian Baseball League, that didn't even make it through a season. We've had independent leagues that have tried to climb up into Canada. We've had double A, we've had triple A, and you get you get too many things going on at the same time and nothing works completely. Nothing grabs hold. And I think the appeal is definitely there for soccer, but what if you get too many leagues? What if you get too much? 
Because right now, do we see massive support for the leagues that we have? Sometimes, but not massive in the way that you can say, yeah, this this is secure. This is ready to go. So be interesting to see how everybody coexists in that world. We're going to take a break. Up next, we're going to talk about an open letter that has been written. And it's been written by a number or signed by a number of former university student council presidents at Western. And it's, it's got a unique thought to some of the things that are playing out in government. And we're going to get some real clear pictures as to why this letter was written and what the issues are that are attached to it. That's next. This is London Live. You're listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Post-secondary education is not free. That much we know. Anybody who has ever been through it knows that, yeah, it, it, it costs some money, and those fees have risen. Now, we also have fees not just to get into the classroom, but to enhance the experience of post-secondary education. And there are some concerns over some recent announcements from the provincial government that have been expressed by 26 past presidents of Western University Students Council. In fact, an open letter has been written. And we want to find out more about this. So joining us on London Live, we have two of the 26 past presidents here from Western University. And we have with us Pat Whalen, and we have with us Adam Fernal. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to the show, first off. Thanks for having Thank us. you so much for having us. Pat, maybe can we start with you? Because these, uh, for the most part, are, are your words, right? You did a lot of this writing. Uh, you know, there was a number of former presidents that, that got together on, on the drafting, and then we put it out to our uh, our predecessors and successors, and very quickly we were able to get uh, a lot of support from past presidents. Let's talk about what you are concerned about. Let's dial this right back to the beginning. Pat, lay yeah. it on us. Yeah, so the government has announced uh, some changes that will be coming to how student governments are able to collect fees. Right now, student governments are able to set their own fees uh, based at the direction of elected student leaders or through direct referendums from students. Uh, but these changes would have um, these fees be opt-outable by students, which poses a, a serious threat to both the autonomy of student governments and their ability to serve students. Okay. Now, Adam, when you first saw this playing out, what were your first reactions? Well, I think when it comes to my first reaction, I was thinking about uh, all of the times that uh, we had really long, deep discussions uh, late into the night at uh, council chambers at the USC and uh, thinking about all of those times that we had these really critical debates about the way that student fees should be allocated and uh, thinking about how solid uh, those conversations were, how meaningful they were and how important they were to giving students choice on campus. And uh, I thought anything that was going to threaten that was something worth engaging with. And so I was pretty uh, interested when uh, 
we got the uh, we got the call or got the email from the group of presidents to uh, sign on to a letter. So, Pat, in terms of just so with it, we can get our heads around this, we have yeah. tuition money that is paid, and we know that the government has has made some changes with regard to tuition fees and has made changes with regard to OSAP. But we're talking about fees that are paid outside of tuition, right? Yeah, they're, they're called ancillary fees, and uh, they can either be collected by the university or by student organizations. Okay, and those would go to a number of different things. So, I mean, we're talking about, hey, if you have a gym membership or I think bus passes, a whole lot of things come out of those ancillary fees. That's right. Health plans, bus passes, um, uh, you know, all of, the organiz- all of the student clubs, orientation weeks, all the different programs that student governments put on. And, and remember that these services are, are pretty critical to the everyday lives of students. And without them, um, you know, there's some serious impacts to a lot of the students. But also some of these services are built around a business model that requires everybody pay in in order to control price. So one of the examples we often use is the bus pass, for instance. We're able to get a good deal for students, a good price for students, because everybody agrees to pay. And so with an opt-out, uh, that, that price control um, comes out of the equation, and as a result, students of lower income are going to be facing much higher costs. And in terms of what the government is looking at, Pat, what do you see as, as kind of being the end game here? Well, and this has been, I think, one of the more uh, frustrating aspects of this, and one of the reasons why we wanted to write the letter. Well, the thing we're asking for here is clarity. The government has not been very clear about what this really means for student governments, and as a result, um, you know, has left everyone... Uh, with a bit of a dark, a dark cloud hanging over them, not really sure what this means. And so what we're calling on in the letter is for the government to, to clearly lay out uh, what this policy means uh, so that student governments can respond and, and work with the government to figure out what it's, what it's going to mean for the way that they operate. And right now you don't feel they, they are doing that? No. From, uh, you know, we've asked uh, Stephen, our, 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 our colleague, I guess, our former colleague, to, uh, to clarify what the government is interested in. Um, you know, we're not, it's important to remember that Adam and I are not on the ground. We're just former students highlighting these issues. So uh, we know that current student leaders are, are speaking with the government, but uh, w- at least what's being trickled down to us is that we don't have clear answers about what this is really going to mean. What we do have is the two of you who can basically shed some light on what USC government affairs are kind of all about and, and what this kind of leads to in the experience of a student. We're talking with Pat Whalen and Adam Fernall, who are past presidents of Western's University Student Council. An open letter has been sent to the Ontario government asking, as Pat just outlined, for them to to lay out exactly what they mean by some of the changes to government fees and what this might mean. Adam, when you look at the student experience and you look at, at how big a role USC government plays, where would you put it? Well, I think it does kind of depend on who you ask, but I think that for me, my introduction to student government actually came as a result of Stephen Lecce. Stephen was uh, standing in the uh, end zone of a football game with me uh, when I was just in first year, and I remember talking to him about his plans, his agenda for the year, and he was very supportive of me. And I think in that moment, I realized that it was a serious level of government. So regardless of the role it plays on campus, I actually think that you can look at student government as an important role, uh, an important government that contributes both on campus and in the community as well. 
And uh, I think that students uh, really come to rely on the voice that uh, student government provides uh, in the community. Uh, they're standing up and advocating on issues that matter. They're keeping the focus on uh, really important topics. And uh, I think they're sort of, they, they do their best to express uh, the student will and the student perspective on campus. So um, I'm not quite sure how I'd rank it, but I definitely say it's important. And I think I learned that from Stephen. And if there was a change to student fees in in terms of affecting government, what would be your concern in that realm? Well, I think as Pat laid out, I think the real concern is that uh, it may restrict the ability for students to uh, make choices about what their life on campus looks like. Oftentimes, student governments are the first movers when it comes to things like mental health supports or uh, diversity. Um, a lot of really important progress on campus has been made because of the fact that student governments have a tendency to listen to students with a really critical ear um, and then amplify those concerns up the chain to people in the university administration. So I think that um, anything that puts us in a position where we're unable to uh, collect the financial support that we need in order to do that really crucial work that makes campus a really, um, that can make campus a safer place um, for people to, to live and, and have a good time during their four years, I, I think we really need to be concerned about that and, and seeking clarity. Um, as Pat said, I think that uh, something that would be a really nice first step would just to hear, be to hear what the government's plans are specifically related to student governments because, uh, you know, we might be able to relax a little bit more if we, uh, we heard that they had uh, more clear plans than what they've articulated so far. We're talking about an open letter that has been written to MPP Stephen Lecce, who is an MPP for King Von Hurst in Toronto, and we're talking about the idea that there hasn't been enough clarity over what student fees means in what is being laid out as, as some changes being made by the Ontario government and, and what that could affect for student experience. We've got a lot of students in this, in, this, uh, in this city, and we've got a lot of people who are connected to university students in one way or another. Pat, let's go back to something that you had mentioned, that the fees become mandatory. So everybody is paying for the bus pass. Everybody is paying for A, B, C, D, and E. You'll have people who say, well, you know, why don't they just check the boxes for what they want and then that's what they have to pay for? You mentioned that that could change the price point pretty severely, though. Yeah, I think there's a couple of things there. So uh, just about how these fees come about. Uh, when a student government raises a fee, uh, it's done a couple of different ways and it varies across campuses. But generally, there's, there's two different paths. Either elected students um, adjust those fees or, or impose those fees or a direct referendum comes about. So I think what's what's important is that students have input on these fees. It's just done through a democratic process as opposed to, you know, ordering something off a menu. So I think that's one really important thing. And then two, I think that there are services, uh, there are two types of services that I think are really at risk here. Uh, one is the kind of service that you don't think you're going to need until you need it. So think um, you know, mental health counseling and other forms of counseling, you may not think that you're going to need that service until you really do. And so having an, ensuring that there isn't, you know, people who have opted out, but then in turn need that service is really critical. The other kind is one in which the business case is built around us all putting in a couple of bucks um, in order to secure a particular price or secure a particular service level using group buying as a as leverage and getting the price down. And that would be more like the bus pass even the health plan to some degree, group buying can be really effective. And that's something that students have done um, through referendums for, for a very long time.
So if this changes, it almost looks better. It's one of those things that could look better from the outset then in saying, hey, you know what? You, you wouldn't have to pay for this. You wouldn't have to pay for this. But then if you encountered needing it on campus, it's not going to work in the way that it does right now. Is that it, Pat? Yeah, exactly. Like right now, students get together and through referendums and through electing students, they decide. Essentially, Adam inferred it earlier, right? It's that student governments often feel unmet need because they are more responsive to student needs than university administration just by the way of being a democratic body. And so we end up filling important services, uh, some of which are benefit a group buying pattern, some of which are services that you may not know that you need until you you absolutely do, you know, thinking of those counseling services as an example. And so, yeah, I think it's really important that students don't opt out of their of their campus life and therefore um, have some negative effects later down the road when there's some unintended consequences. And let's outline that we're not talking about two people who have signed on to this open letter. Adam, you guys are two of 26 who have done it. What's the other reaction been among people you've been able to, to correspond with? Well, I think you can you can hear the sort of strength in the the network of twenty six just in listening to the, the the way that Pat and I speak about this in in different ways. I think you can hear from Pat a real clarity around the policy implications and uh, a real knowledge uh, of of the way that the system is working. And I think um, you get from me sort of the voice of somebody who's just started a new job in a new city, who's a little bit busier and uh, isn't as up-to-date on exactly what's going on, but we can lend our voice, uh, no matter our stage in life, to a conversation like this. So I think that one of the real great things that I've seen across the network of presidents is just like a real willingness to step up and to be part of this conversation in whatever way they can be in it at this stage in their life. So we've got people uh, working as lawyers, people working in not-for-profit, people working in for-profit. We've got people really across the entire spectrum of... um, economic circumstance and political circumstance really speaking up and saying, you know, it's important to hear some clarity on this because this was an experience that mattered to us and matters to students. And, uh, you know, I think that we're, we're in an interesting position to try and say something about this. So, um, yeah, there's been lots of reaction and it's been, been heartening to see it um, and to be part of it. Adam Fernald and Pat Whalen, two past presidents of Western's University Student Council. Pat, you'd mentioned you're hoping for clarity on this policy. Is there anything else you hope this open letter accomplishes? You know, I, I think what I would say is that, as, as Adam mentioned, Stephen had a, a reputation of being an excellent representative for Western students when he was a USC president. And so what we're really hoping for is that he once again uh, becomes a representative for students inside the government. We know that Stephen Lecce has, has a lot of influence in this government, and we're hoping he can use it uh, to bring that ex- firsthand experience of being a student leader to these conversations um, and really uh, and hopefully find a policy outcome that works for, for students and universities and student government. Gentlemen, it's uh, always incredible to watch what voices can do and the discussion they can create. Thanks for having a discussion with us today. Thank you so much, Mike. Take care. That is Adam Fernal and Pat Whalen talking about an open letter that has been sent to MPP Stephen Lecce, taking a look at at some of the changes that the Ontario government wants to make in the money that students and or their families are paying for their post-secondary education and what that might mean, saying there isn't enough clarity here and, you know, changing student fees, doing away with some student fees, changing the way that, that those student fees operate, that could have big implications going forward. So we'll monitor the story for you. Next up, we'll let you know what's coming up in the next hour of London Live. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL.
Big announcements in Toronto today regarding the Junos. Sarah McLaughlin is going to host. We'll talk about those announcements at about uh, the 207 mark. So in about 10 minutes from now, we are also going to talk about tobogganing and street hockey and other winter activities and why it could become easier for municipalities to say, go ahead, kids. You want to do it? Go ahead. Toboggan down any hill we have. Right now, believe it or not, it's not easy for them to say that. We'll get to more on that as well in hour number two. And we'll talk tornadoes. London Live, brought to you by Winmar, your restoration specialist. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. If you look up London Junos, you are going to see that they are coming a whole lot closer. We've got Groundhog Day. Then we've got Junos. Kind of follows. No, it's not that close. Groundhog Day is this Saturday. And Junos, well, we're looking at middle of March. But that's not far away. We won't have the cold snap then, will we? Right? March 11th to 17th will feature Juno Week, and there were a number of announcements made today. You just heard Jacqueline LaBelle talking about the fact that Sarah McLaughlin is going to host, that Loud Luxury with Great London Ties, guys who moved to L.A., ate oatmeal every day, used to live in an apartment that was once rented by Charles Manson, because you could get things like that at a discount. Imagine that. They are going to not only be performing, but will also be up for a Juno themselves. Joining us right now from Tourism London is Chris Campbell. Chris, how are things? Oh, amazing, Mike. We've had a lot of great announcements. Here you are in Toronto. You guys had a red carpet out today, didn't you? Yeah, there was a red carpet and uh, lots of exciting announcements, including obviously the host and uh, some performers, and of course, the the main uh, thing was really the nominees. So, uh, very exciting year for Canadian music. Being a part of the organizing committee and all of this, how many fewer texts do you think you're going to get per day, based on the fact that we now know who the host is? What are we getting about a hundred a day? Asking? Yeah, it was. It was. You know what? Now there are other things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just changes. The questions change. What do you think the next questions are going to be? I think, well, there's a lot of performers announcements that are still to come on the show, obviously. And, um, we have, we ourselves have many, many announcements. I would say, you know, more than 40 announcements coming up in the next month or so. So this is the beginning of, it's almost the start of another, and it was a year ago today that we announced the Junos were coming to London. And so here we are in Toronto and we're announcing the nominees. So the, the day was perfect. And, uh, here we go. Uh, we're, you know, 40-some-odd days out, 47, I believe, and um, the countdown is on, and, and there are so many exciting announcements to follow on events, performers, presenters, nominees, host committee events, um, many, many, many things, and it's all focused on London, and London is hosting uh, the most important uh, Canada's Day in Music, really, so... Well, that will be Sunday, March 17th, but don't just put that one down in your calendar because this no. really does begin March 11th, and it does really run yeah. all week. You've seen this play out. What sorts of things do happen during the week? Well, you know, there's a lot of things that we haven't announced yet that you'll be hearing about, but we have talked about Juno Fest, and Juno Fest, of course, will run the Friday and the Saturday. That will involve about 18 different venues and well over 100 bands, 
performers, and, and you'll see, I would probably estimate around 70% of those to be Juno-nominated artists, so from the pool of artists you saw today, and then about 30% of the best of the best of you know local and regional artists. So been a great opportunity for London artists that have applied, and uh, we received a tremendous response for that. So the Juno Fest people, are very busy. Brandon Eady, who is our local producer, is very busy, um, you know, working with his team, and they are they're booking bands as we are talking. We're talking with Chris Campbell, Director of Culture and Entertainment Tourism with Tourism London, and we are talking about the Junos, March 17th in London, but book off that week, March 11th to March 17th. You never know who you're going to see, and nominations tend to kind of bring people to awards shows. Did all the nominations come out today? Yeah, all the nominations came out uh, today. Okay, and so that is something that if you want to check out, we don't have time to list absolutely everybody who was nominated for everything, but those nominees are certainly in place. And like you say, as many as 40 announcements still to come. Anything else that we need to get ourselves caught up on right now, Chris? You're up to speed right now, but uh, yeah, just a very exciting day. And, you know, it's really something to be here on Front Street and uh, in Toronto and to have everybody talking about London, Ontario. And that was really a, a proud moment, I think, for everybody here and uh, should be for people in London. Fantastic. You drive back safely or travel back safely, and we will talk soon. Thank you. That is Chris Campbell. He is the Director of Culture and Entertainment Tourism with Tourism London. And we've hosted big events. We've hosted world-class events. But this is one of those ones that in the music industry, it just it brings everybody who is anyone in the Canadian music industry, and we've got so much rich talent, and it brings them here, where you go to your favorite restaurant and you'll want to look around just to, oh, look who that is in, in the back there. That's the kind of thing. You'll walk by somebody on the sidewalk, and maybe you say, oh, no, can't be. And it is. That's what we're heading toward starting March 11th. We are heading toward a conversation that we need to have about liability. Liability plays too big a role in our lives, in my estimation. It really does. We have to give people more responsibility for their actions. Really. And I don't know where this necessarily starts. I don't know what contributes to it. I'm sure I can throw in any number of things, including overreactive parents. That would probably do it. But municipalities have really been dealing with difficult scenarios and costly scenarios with regard to liability. And that hasn't changed for sure, but could change. And in a moment, we're going to talk with Thames Center Deputy Mayor Kelly Elliott, who has been at the regional mayor's conference, basically, and has been talking about this topic and others, but this one really has stood out for the simple fact that municipalities being liable comes down to a big part of banning tobogganing on some hills or other municipalities saying, well, we can't have street hockey anymore, things like that that really aren't necessarily going to injure anybody in any great way, but when municipalities try and cut down on it, they have had significant reason for doing it. We'll investigate that next. We'll talk about what Ontario Premier Doug Ford has put forward and what that could mean. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.
If you think back to your own childhood, was there anything better than seeing the snow fly, grabbing something like a sled, or an actual toboggan, or as Marilyn had said, you could get a little piece of cardboard. In university, you could always borrow a food tray, and you could go flying down hills. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Well... Yeah, there is. Because the word liability can get in the way. Rural municipalities have had issues with this for a long time because liability can be a very, very expensive thing. So how does this all work? Well, instead of me trying to explain it, let's get to somebody who has spent some time at the Rural Ontario Municipal Association meetings and heard yesterday as Ontario Premier Doug Ford was addressing this issue. Joining us right now on London Live is Thames Centre Deputy Mayor Kelly Elliott. Kelly, how are things? Things are great. I'm actually just in Toronto. Uh, we're just finishing up the ROMA, which is the Rural Ontario Municipalities Association Conference. Uh, so it's been a busy, hectic three days, but it's been good. Now, is this something that when you come out of it, you get that feeling of, we can do anything? Is it inspiring? <laughs> it is. It is. And because, and especially for rural municipalities, I find that um, we face the same issues that urban centers face, but at the same time, we don't have the resources to tackle those issues. So we have to get a little more creative. So um, spending time at these conferences and hearing what other municipalities are doing uh, definitely kind of gives you insight into what you can be doing in your community. It leaves you like just wanting to get home and start doing things. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Elliott with us, Deputy Mayor of Thames Centre, and we are talking about obviously the, the Rural Municipalities Conference, but at the same time, let's also look at something that has come out of that. And these stories come up once in a while where a municipality will ban road hockey or a toboggan hill will be declared off limits. And a lot of that, if you dig deeper, comes into concern over liabilities among municipalities. This came up yesterday. What did you get from the conversation? Yeah, so uh, Premier Doug Ford did a, a speech yesterday at Roma, and, and part of that speech, he announced a lot of different things, um, but he announced that his government will be looking into reforming joint and several liability. Uh, this has been something that through uh, Roma and through the Association of Municipalities of Ontario, we've been fighting for years and years and years for government to do this. So essentially what joint and several liability means is that um, if someone is injured on municipal property, so whether it is at our arena, at a park, on our roadways, in a car accident or a car crash, um, what happens if, if a municipality is found even 1% liable, we, are on, we could be on the hook for 100% of the lawsuit costs. So, in, so what municipalities have done is just try to mitigate those risks. And so they've banned, some municipalities have banned toboggan hills, road hockey, and things like that just to take away that risk of being held even that 1% liable. And that can be, I'm sure, a pretty wide-open can of worms, 1% liable. I don't even begin to know what that would be, but, you know, if if a tree branch was hanging out over a toboggan hill or, you know, if somebody hadn't plowed a sidewalk, I'm sure those factors would come up, wouldn't they? 
Absolutely. And so, and like I said, even that 1% liable, even being that, you know, little patch of ice on the roadway or that tree branch on the toboggan hill, that puts us at 1% liability and that can equal up to 100% of the lawsuit cost. So when you're looking, we're using taxpayer dollars to pay out these lawsuits. So obviously that's not how we want to spend taxpayer dollars. We want to spend taxpayer dollars on enhancing toboggan hills, on our arenas, on our parks, on our roads and all of that. And so we'd rather spend our taxpayer dollars on those things versus paying out lawsuits. And that's why you see municipalities banning certain things just to take that risk away. Thames Centre Councillor and Deputy Mayor Kelly Elliott with us on London Live. Kelly, has this been talked about much? It's definitely been a focal point in the last couple of days since Premier Ford announced that they'd be looking into it uh, with a lot of municipalities because it's excitement. It's, we've been talking about it for years and finally we have a government saying, you know, we'll commit to at least looking at it. It's the farthest we've gotten in 10 years, so we'll take it. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for the time. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Kelly Elliott, Deputy Mayor in Thames Centre, outlining what is also called the Joint and Severe Liability Rule. So here's how it works. If one party is found to have some of the responsibility, they are still liable for total damages if other liable parties are unable to pay. So as Kelly said, all it takes is 1% of the liability, the fault in some case, to fall on the municipality. And then, you know, if there's an award, an example that was given on Global News was this one. You've got a guy who is tobogganing. And the guy goes down the hill and he hits a snow-covered drain pipe. He injures his spine. This happened in Hamilton. He goes to court and gets a settlement of nearly $1 million for those injuries. And because, you know, whoever it would have been, and and in this case, I'm not sure who else it could have been. Maybe you could say, well, my buddy pushed me too hard. I don't know. If there was joint liability, then what you have is, well, it's a $1 million decision. It's a $1 million settlement. Uh, the only ones that can pay that, yeah, City of Hamilton. That's you. That's that's on you because you were 1% liable. When, what are you supposed to do, have signs everywhere? You know, what's the first thing you're taught to do? And I'm, I don't know this case, but let's not refer directly to this case, but let's take a look at tobogganing itself, okay? If you're a good tobogganer, what do you do? You look at the base of the hill and you see what might be around there. And you kind of take a look at it. That's what you've got to do. You don't just go to the top of the hill and go flying down. You got to make sure that you've got nice clear path at the bottom to make it through. And a lot of times on good tobogganing hills, you know, everybody knows. You know, yeah, people toboggan there all the time. But in some cases, if there is a concrete wall at the end or the base of the hill, you should not toboggan down that hill. That's on you. And how many times could we run into that? And the problem becomes you've got municipalities that say, well, this hasn't happened to us, but could it? Yeah, it could. Would we be out a million bucks? Well, if it was any decision like that, yeah, we'd be out a million bucks. Ball hockey, somebody slips and falls on a city street. Oh, well, that wasn't plowed properly. Yeah, but you're running around with a hockey stick. You know, 
Do we have to put up a sign saying, play street hockey at your own risk, warning people that they might fall? Our world would be covered in signs. Sign makers right now are saying, yes, please do that. Can we, can we have more of that? I make signs. I will make you a sign for everything. Please be aware that if you play street hockey on this street, you could fall and bump your head. Please be aware that if you jog on this street, you could fall and bump your head. Please be aware that you, insert problem here, could fall and bump your head. That's what it would come down to. It's crazy. You have to put things on people every once in a while. If you're going to slide down a hill and there's a concrete wall at the bottom of it and you run into it, if it's a concrete barrier covered in snow and you didn't bother to look, shouldn't that be on you? I know the courts in a certain case that we just highlighted in Hamilton decided otherwise, but when do we put the responsibility on people? We have to. You have to be able to take responsibility for what you have done. You fall off something, you run into something, chances are you had something to do with it. Not every case. That's where this gets into a really tough gray area. And here's the other problem in this. It costs municipalities across the province, according to a global news report, more than $300 million to insure their communities. And as with a lot of things regarding insurance, what have we seen? We've seen premiums go up, and there's an example that insurance costs increased in the community of Essex 41% in one year because of one claim. Because then the insurance company has to evaluate the risk factors and say, you know, yeah, um, we're not going to be able to, uh, to guarantee that this won't happen again, so we're going to have to raise your premiums. Looks like you, you could encounter some serious risk with what you – really? But we're all kind of at the mercy of that. And we've talked to insurance companies before. We've talked to insurance adjusters, and they will give – their reasoning for why we see higher premiums, and a lot of it goes to fraud. I mean, that's a whole other topic. But in the case of municipalities having to insure themselves, well, you, you can't blame them. They need to. And it does have to somehow fall back to the responsibility of the person. That's where it ultimately has to end. You are responsible for not checking you are responsible for bumping into this. That's on you. You are res- you take the risk. Look at look at how many times we go somewhere and what's the first thing you have to do? If you go somewhere that involves any kind of physical activity, what is the first thing you have to do? You get the waiver form, right? And you have to sit there and you can either fill it out paper form or now depending on what it is, You've got it electronically where you just go, boop, 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 boop. Yeah, there's a waiver form. Yep. Are you reading all the terms and conditions? Absolutely not. You're not reading all the terms and conditions because what is the least read thing on the internet? All of the words that come before I agree. Give me my thing. Can I have my thing now? I want to do what I want to do and I don't care what it is that you're saying. Yeah, 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 whatever. I agree. Just let me do my thing. Same thing here. But why exactly do we have to sit and, you know, put this on municipalities? I love that the Ford government is going to look into this rule because municipalities have been asking for it just to be looked at. That's it. 
They're not asking for anything big. They're just saying, please review this, because you know what? We're banging our heads against the wall thinking this is insane. And nobody's listening. Why? Because nobody else wants the liability to fall to them? I don't know. At some point, it has to come down to us. You've got to be responsible for your actions, and you've got to take the consequences of the fact that you didn't stay inside your house with the lights off, sitting in the middle of the room, so that you did not get hurt. And too often we have that. Oh, my poor little baby got hurt. Yeah, you know, you fall down, you bump your head, you bump your arm, you bump your leg. Isn't that part of being human? Otherwise, you're not experiencing much. We could all sit inside. We can all make sure that we don't get hurt. That's easy. But that's not a very fun life. Coming up next, we'll talk about something that is a little bit more severe than falling down and bumping your leg, bumping your arm. We'll talk about tornadoes. Well, tornadoes don't come here. Yeah, they do, actually. You know, we, We've got a good portion of a tornado alley right in... Close to our area? Is that the best way to say it? We'll get it outlined completely. But in Canada, we have such a wide expanse of space. We get larger tornadoes than we might realize, only they're not striking heavily populated areas all the time. So that means that we don't tend to talk about them much. But people are studying them. And in fact, there's an even bigger portion of people studying tornadoes. We're going to speak with one of them and try to find out what he and his colleagues are hoping to uncover in taking a look, a much closer look, at tornadoes. This is London Live. Up next, we've got news with Jacqueline LaBelle. You're listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. An hour ago, we said congratulations to Jade Kovacevic, who has signed with AS Roma in Italy. Dynamite soccer player in this area for a long time. Also want to extend congratulations officially. We did it because he appeared on London Live not too long ago. But officially to Nick Vannon because he was recognized by Governor General Julie Payette today at a ceremony in Ottawa that gave credit and credence to the efforts of the top eight academic All-Canadians in youth sports. Nick Vanden plays for the Western Mustang football team. Vanier Cup champion. He's balanced that with becoming a doctor, basically. And if he's somebody else that we add to the health field, then our health field just keeps getting stronger. So congratulations to those two very young athletes and people in this area. Very well done. Coming up, we are going to talk tornadoes. We're going to discuss how prevalent they actually are as we watch the wind whip around outside and we watch the cold weather come in. It won't be too long before we start talking thunderstorms and things. And each and every year, London kind of goes neck and neck with Windsor for thunderstorms. And one of the two is usually the thunderstorm capital of Canada, for a particular year. Well, we also get extreme weather in other ways, and who knows, with the way that our world is going, we may continue to get more and more extreme weather. So, what's being done? Well, at Western University, they're starting to keep a closer tab on some of the extremities in weather, and one of those just happens to be tornadoes. We'll talk about the Northern Tornado Project when London Live continues. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.
Nobody wants a tornado to visit their neighborhood. Storm chasers will sometimes try and track them down, try to see them, but you don't necessarily want one to arrive on your doorstep. You talk to anybody who's been through a tornado, they will say, hey, this is like hearing a train coming. That's the power of it. And some of the things, there was, there was someone who survived a tornado. They had run down an alley, and this was in Tuscaloosa in Alabama. They'd run down an alley, they turned around, they could see the tornado basically coming down the street. So they jumped kind of into a doorway, couldn't get through the door. So picture enough of a doorway that you had you know, an indent where you could get your entire body in there. And they held on to the door with all that they had. And the tornado ended up passing by. The strength of the wind was so strong that it blew out the jewels that were in this. This was a a female. Blew out the jewels that were in her earrings. The earrings were still in her ears. But the wind had actually blown out the little jewels that were in those earrings. And she survived. And that was the kind of tornado that did claim lives, that certainly changed lives, because it claimed homes, it claimed entire neighborhoods. Tuscaloosa sometimes has those happen, and they hit populated areas. In Canada, what are we seeing? Well, we're going to be seeing more about whatever it is that we are seeing, thanks to the Northern Tornado Project. And joining us right now to talk about that is somebody who's heavily involved with it. From Western University, please welcome Dr. Gregory Kopp to London Live. Dr. Kopp, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. We don't necessarily think of Canada as uh, a tornado alley, really, anywhere. Is that a, a proper frame of mind? Um. Well, the actual Tornado Alley, which we usually think of Oklahoma and Kansas and that, actually extends up through Michigan, turns at the border, crosses at Windsor, and goes up the 401 a little ways. So the the, the Tornado Alley does come into Canada. And um, Canada has the second largest number of tornadoes in the world um, of any country. So it's not nearly as many as the U.S., but it's uh, we still have them. Now, sometimes the ones that make the news need to get up to the category F4 or F5 storm. The ones that do make it into Canada, typically what are they like? Um, well, the majority of tornadoes, even in the U.S., are of, of lower, uh, lower strength. So the majority are EF0s, which are just at the threshold of damage, and then you get... Um, quite a large number, but a smaller number of EF1s and EF2s and down to EF3s. And then EF4s and EF5s are pretty rare. We've one documented uh, F5 tornado from, from Manitoba in 2007. That's the only one we've had in the country. Um, and we've had a few F4s. And this year we had an F4 in Manitoba again, north of, uh, north of Winnipeg. And I guess when you do have a storm that big, typically what are the ramifications from it, are we talking about one in Manitoba that that wasn't in a, a residential area or a, a a populated area? The one the one we know about in Manitoba this year, which actually was the strongest one in all of North America in in 2018, um, 
we know about it because it hit a small town named Alonsa. Um, someone was killed, so we have a tragedy associated with it. It went through a provincial park and through some trailers and trucks into the lake. Um, so that's why we know about that one. If it had happened 10 miles away, it would have been in farmers' fields and we wouldn't be talking about it at all. We're talking with Dr. Gregory Kopp, who is a Western Engineering Professor, Acting Dean as well. And we're going to now talk about the Northern Tornadoes Project. And this is something that isn't brand new, but certainly helps out. How would this be helpful to someone studying tornadoes? Well, what we're trying to do is capture every tornado that happens in the country um, and and obtain high-resolution data for it uh, so that we can archive that and store it uh, as part of a permanent record of, of tornadoes in Canada. We think Environment Canada has done a study um, looking at where tornadoes are identified, looking at population density, and then looking at lightning data, for which there's way more information. And they estimate that we probably are only capturing a quarter to a third of the tornadoes are, are actually being identified, that there's far more They're just happening where there is no one. If you have a tornado in the boreal forest, does anyone know? Does anyone care? But we care and we're trying to find them. How do you do that if all of a sudden you weren't there or no one else was? That's the challenge. Um, And new technology is really helping us. So we use radar data from Environment Canada. Those help us locate uh, severe thunderstorms. Um, so we know when that happens from, from the radar, which has really good coverage across the country, then um, our planet is being imaged all the time, and uh, a lot of that data is now public. So we use satellite imagery, and we go and follow the storm tracks and see if we can see any kind of hint of any damage. And uh, you can. The satellite data that's publicly available to us has a resolution of about 2 meters, and that's enough to see damage. And then if we think that there's something there based on the satellites, we hire aircraft and they fly over and they take images with a resolution of five centimeters, which is close enough for us to see the trees and see, even see the branches. And from that, we can tell if there was a tornado, we can tell how long and wide it was, and we can tell how strong it was. So when we capture all this information, we actually learn a lot more about tornadoes than we knew before. Dr. Kopp, when you get to that point where you're capturing images like that, is that the easy part to determine whether or not there's been a tornado, or can wind damage sometimes be similar to a tornado but not actually be classified as one? It can be really complicated because with the thunderstorms, there can be other kinds of wind. There can be things called down downbursts. So tornadoes are associated with the upflow, so on hot summer days, you usually associate it with that. The sun warms the ground, the air warms up and rises, forms the thunderstorm, and that helps the tornado to form. But when the air rises, it can also, there's also cooling air that can fall to the earth, and those are the downbursts. And as the storm passes by, you have these different kinds of winds happening. So tornadoes have particular tracks there. They tend to be very long and narrow. Downbursts tend to be short and wide, and so we, we, we infer that a tornado is there from the path of the damage. Okay, and in terms of classifying it, what sorts of things are you looking for in order to figure out just how big and how strong the winds were? So that's a, that's a new area of research that we're working on. So we take this, uh, this high-resolution imagery, we identify the trees, uh, we're working on 
on machine learning or artificial intelligence algorithms to identify where those individual trees are and the pattern that they've fallen over. And then we have models for how a tornado vortex works, and we combine those two things to actually sort out how, what kind of winds cause those trees to fall down in that pattern. And so there's quite a bit of work uh, to do that. And uh, again, the latest research is helping us with that part of it as well. We're talking with Dr. Greg Kopp, who is with Western University. We're talking about the Northern Tornadoes Project. Dr. Kopp, with a changing climate, we always hear that we could see more extremes and more extreme storms. How key could this research be in determining things like that? Uh, I think it's going to be helpful. Part of the, the challenge is if we had so many missing tornadoes in our archive, it's hard to know what we can compare it to. And we're going to be, we're already identifying more tornadoes. And we can't attribute that just because we've changed our method to climate change. Uh, but we're trying to get that better information so we get a better handle of the risk. The climate scientists, um, when, when, when they look at these things, when they look at the U.S., they think, there's a bunch of factors that go into tornadoes forming, and they think it's going to kind of be the same in the U.S. The locations may change, and uh, the number of days with outbreaks may change, but the overall number they expect about the same. But when you start talking to them and they and they look at Canada, they don't do that very often. You know, they think tornadoes stop at the 49th parallel. <laughs> um, it actually, we think it could be getting worse in Canada. It's just it's going to be really hard to prove that. Hmm. When you look at tornadoes, what is it that fascinates you about them? Oh, well, they're they're awe-inspiring. I mean, when you look at them, they're beautiful. You know, I say awe-inspiring, but then the counter counterpart word with that would be awful because they're so destructive. And so they're both of those things. I think they're beautiful and they're destructive. And as humans, I think we're fascinated by those kind of things, as sick as that sounds, maybe. No, no, I think you're bang uh, on. That, that's, I think that's I think that's what it is. Uh, I think we find it uh, inspiring, but it also frightens us. Well, thanks for helping us to learn more about them. Dr. Kopp, have a great afternoon. Thanks, Mike. You too. Dr. Gregory Kopp from Western University. And he's right. I mean, it's almost like serial killers. People are fascinated by what makes serial killers tick. I don't know why that is. Some people will say, no, that disgusts me. I'm not touching that. I will not hear more about that. But, yeah, there, it's, the, it's the old car crash rule. Why was there a slowdown on the 401? Because people thought there was a car crash. You've been through that slowdown where, oh, what is going on? Why are we not moving? And then you pull up and there's a stalled vehicle. Oh, but people were slowing down just in case it was something more. Just to take a look. Because that's what they were doing. So, same sort of thing. And in this case, they'll learn more about them. And as Dr. Kopp pointed out, good chance it's going to seem like there's way more tornadoes and a a far greater amount of tornado activity because now they're starting to look at them in a much greater scale and pinpoint each and every one of them. But in the end, you wind up learning a whole lot more. And uh, while we're not going to be able to avoid them, we will learn more about them. So Dr. Gregory Kopp, we'll hopefully talk to him in the future as well. Let's take a final break on London Live. Back with one final story next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Been doing some thinking about the Toronto Maple Leafs. It's not keeping me up at night. You know what they need to do? 
They need to go for it this year. This this is it. Put some eggs in a basket. Take first-round picks like the one that they spent to get Jacob Muzzin, who's from Woodstock, now going to be able to play in Toronto. Take your 2020 first-round pick, your second-round pick, couple of prospects from the Marlies that are prized. Package them. Trade them. Bring in Wayne Simmons from Philadelphia if you can get him. Bring in Adam McQuaid, who once won a Stanley Cup with the Boston Bruins, if you can get him. A little more grit, toughness, shot blocking. You're one of the best scoring teams in the league. This this is it. This this is an opportunity. Yeah, 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 Tampa Bay, Tampa. No, this, this is it. The Toronto Maple Leafs could run into some nasty contract troubles as early as this summer. This is the time to strike, to do it. Don't add in too much. You don't need too much. But another defenseman like Adam McQuaid, yeah. The Leafs could win the Stanley Cup. And a lot of Leaf fans are saying, yeah, 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 look at it. Our team is good enough. We can, we can win the Stanley Cup. Yeah. Well, how about now? Oh, and it's almost like they stop and say, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, I was hoping for it. But yeah, it could be just a, a piece or two away. Wayne Simmons, great guy. One World Juniors, has had a good career so far in Philadelphia. Adam McQuaid, great guy. Maybe throwing a Matt Zuccarello. They're all unrestricted free agents. Maybe the Leafs, maybe they could really win the Stanley Cup. What do you think? Mortgage some of that future. Get rid of it. You don't, you don't need it. Don't worry about trading first-round picks. It was good to see a first-round pick in that deal for Jake Muzzin. Don't worry about that. That's not what you need right now. You need guys like Jake Muzzin who know how to win the Stanley Cup, and this could happen. Could you imagine what the world would be like if the Toronto Maple Leafs won the Stanley Cup? Imagine being a part of the organization that was able to bring a Stanley Cup. We've got a lot of London ties to it. They, would they ever pay for anything for the rest of their lives? It would, it would be crazy. Imagine the streets. We would need to actually bring in, I think, police officers from other countries, not just other cities. It wouldn't be that Toronto needed police officers from other cities. You would need every city in the country to have police officers from other countries in order to police the celebrations that would go on. But yeah, the more I think about it, you're close enough now. Don't worry about the challenges in the offseason. Try and win it this year. And if you don't, well, you don't. But give it a shot because they are just that Close. Okay, one story before we go. This is not from around here because it is too slippery to drive this quickly, but a story before we go comes from Illinois and lets us know that a woman was just pulled over by Illinois State Police, and she was actually in the snow, driving 115 miles per hour. 115 miles per hour. Do you know how fast 70 miles per hour is? She was driving 115 miles per hour in a 35-mile-per-hour zone, and she was immediately tossed in jail. Police have actually shown a picture of the ticket to try and get people to realize, yeah, this this shouldn't happen. Road conditions read snow or slush. The night was clear, so it wasn't snowing. But snow and slush on the road, they put her right in prison. And now they are circulating this so that a number of other people can see, as Sergeant Dave Rector used to tell us, 
When you see snow, go slow. If you don't, well, into jail with you. That is our story before we go. Next, we are going to have news with Jacqueline LaBelle and Matthew Trevithick. We will have some weather updates from John Wilson. He'll be able to let us know what's coming. We do know that cold is coming. We do know that, you know, it probably isn't a bad idea. Again, find a northerner and ask them for tips. Here's a tip that they will give. Not a bad idea before you go to bed tonight to just go outside and take five, six minutes, start your car, let it idle for five or six minutes, and then go to bed. And then when you get up and at them in seven hours from now, go out and give it a little start. It'll thank you for it. News is on the way. London Live, brought to you by Winmar, your restoration specialist. You're listening to Global News Radio, 980 CFPL.